Well, as you may have gathered, uh, this morning we're talking about rest, because of course we are. Uh, Some of us have been up since 5am this morning to watch the Socceroos, and I won't spoil the result in case you haven't watched it yet. If you didn't get up to watch it, you're of course not a true Australian, (laughs) and I'm aware of a certain worship leader this morning who falls into that category, unfortunately, but there's no shame here, right? There's no shame in our church. Uh, But of course we're talking about rest. Because it's December already. In fact, it's December 2022. This is the year when things were supposed to be easier. But it hasn't been exactly. We may have been freed from the lockdowns, but we have not been free from rising cost of living and rate hikes and rent hikes and inflation. And nowhere is this more obvious than when you open a packet of chips. don't know if you've noticed this, but the... The uh, ratio of air to chips is more dire than it's ever been. And you're paying more for it than ever before. That's just sort of a metaphor, I think, for the rest of life. We're paying more for electricity. We're paying more for housing. We're paying more just generally across the board and getting less wage as a result. And I know a bunch of you who have been pretty stressed about that. This has actually been a pretty hard year for many of us, and not just because of those things, but I know for some of you, other things that have been happening in life too. It's no wonder then that people have been yearning for a rest. And for some of us, it's looked like maybe one of two different strategies to try and find rest. And these aren't wrong strategies. They're just strategies that we try to employ. The first is the escape strategy. So we try to get out of the pressures of life by going on a holiday, of course. Uh, Sky and I went on a holiday for a few weeks this year. It was a great time, uh, but sort of escape. There's another strategy as well, which is what I might call the treatment strategy. So we understand that you know, when we escape, we've, of course, got to come back. And so we look for ways to weave more healthy rest into the fabric of everyday life. And so some of us have been greatly helped by counsellors or psychologists, for example. I know that rates of seeing professional medical help have skyrocketed over the last couple of years. I've been one of those people, I'm happy to admit, to go and actually seek help from experts to learn how to rest better. It's been fantastically helpful. Uh, But there's the other strategy, I think, that people employ. It's either escape or it's treatment. How do I have a better rest or how do I learn how to rest? Both okay strategies as far as they go. However, This morning, we're not just talking about having a rest, nor are we just talking about learning how to rest better. We're actually going to talk about the rest, the rest that God himself gives. And it's the rest without which even the greatest holiday and even the most helpful and peer-reviewed psychological techniques won't actually deal with with the deepest problem that we have. And it's the rest with which we actually have the capacity to approach all the difficulties and hardships of life. So this morning, as we go through Hebrews chapter 4, which reflects on this rest from God, we're going to see two things. First, a warning that it's possible not to enter God's true rest. And then secondly, a promise that it is possible to enter God's true rest Today, it is possible to enter God's true rest today. Let's pray as we jump in. 
Lord, as we're reflecting this morning on the rest that comes from you, we pray you would be the one to speak to us. We need to hear from you this morning. And so, Lord, wherever each of our minds or hearts might be at this point, we pray that you would draw us now to think, feel, and respond in the ways that you would have us do. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said before, Sky and I went away on a holiday for a few weeks this year. It was a fantastic time. Um, about a week of that was spent with my side of the family over in the Kimberley region. Now, not the sort of holiday that we can afford by ourselves, but when the parents are paying, it's a great blessing. <laughs> so we went away into the Kimberley region, and we spent about a week out on a, a boat fishing. Um, we had a great time with that. And in fact, we'd been looking forward to it, counting down to it, because this is the holiday that was supposed to happen in 2020, and we all know why it didn't. My brother was one of those people who was looking forward to this holiday as well. But when we got there, something happened. We heard a sound from my brother, and it's the kind of sound that since 2020 strikes fear into the souls of man. He coughed. Kids, do you know what that means when my, my brother coughed when he was away on holiday? Do you know what that means? What did he have? COVID-19. That's right. And so my brother who was also looking forward to this amazing break, his first holiday in two or three years, away with us, away with his wife. He instead got put below deck on the boat. No social interaction. No fishing. No fish to eat. No fresh air. This is down with the porthole, below deck. The poor guy for five consecutive days. When he finally got out, he was like a caged animal that had just been released. Like he was pacing back and forth at the airport to go back home to work. The poor guy. Now, it's gutting because just like us, he was really looking forward to this holiday, right? He had his bag packed. He had his ticket booked. He'd gotten on the plane. He'd even gotten on the boat, for goodness sake. But he didn't actually get to enjoy the rest that he anticipated he would have. Which brings us to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, and the warning. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. See, there are people who think they're on the way to rest with God. A bit like my brother, he thought he was on the way to a good rest on his holiday. There are people who think they're on the way to rest with God. Now, we're not told exactly, by the way, what this rest is just yet. You might think you've got it all figured out. I know what you're talking about, Dan. Or you might be sitting there going, oh, no, it's too abstract. I don't get this. What is, it's airy-fairy. I don't understand. We're not told what the rest is just yet. That comes later. But there are some people who think that they've got their ticket booked and their bag packed for whatever this rest might be. And some of them, as verse 1 says, any of them, any of you, who are hearing this, will fall short of it. And so let us fear, we want. Don't simply assume, presuppose, that you are en route to rest with God. It's a mistake as old as history. Quite literally, in fact. It's a mistake that the Israelites made centuries ago. Come to verse 2. 
where we hear a mention of good news that came to certain people. These certain people are the Israelites living in the wilderness centuries and centuries ago, just after they'd been freed from Egypt. Now, the reason that I know that is because, and this is the way Hebrews works, it's always quoting the Old Testament. If you look down Hebrews 4, you'll see all these indented quotes, right? You see them there? Take a look in your Bible. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 7. Do you see all those indentations there? And if you go back to chapter 3, you see a whole bunch as well. These are all quoting one psalm from the Bible that Rhonda read out for us earlier on. Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is itself referring back to another event in the Bible from Numbers 13 to 14. You got that? The Israelites would have got that because this is written to the Hebrews, right? And they're like the kid in English class who's always read the book. They know what's happening here in the background. So when Hebrews 4 points back to Psalm 95, which points back to Numbers 13 to 14, they're all over it. Okay? And Numbers 13 to 14 is about a time in history when the Israelites thought they were on the way to rest, like my brother, but they didn't actually arrive. The event goes like this. And kids, you might know this story from the Bible as well. It's a true story. Uh, The Israelites have been freed from slavery in Egypt. They're on the cusp of entering the promised land, right? They've been slaves for 400 years. Finally, rest is coming. And so as they're there at the foot of the promised land, they send 12 spies out into the land. 12 spies go out, 12 spies come back. And here's the report from 10 of them. We can't go there. We can't go into that land. Because have you seen the people there? They're as big as Harry Sutar. It's like spread of tiny chuckles. You guys haven't watched the World Cup, for goodness sake. This is Harry Sutar, okay? The guy on the left in both photos. The guy on the right with the the tie there is Martin Boyle. He's like an average-heighted striker for the Socceroos. Guy on the left, Harry Sutar, is about six foot seven. You can see him as well on the right. He is a big boy. So imagine going into battle with an army full of guys like that. That's what the Israelites see. They go, we can't take on Harry Sutar. We can't take on these people who are in this land. Or at least that's what 10 of the spies say. Two of them come back, Joshua and Caleb, and they say, guys, it's called the promised land because God promised it, and he never goes back on his promises. We can go into this land and God will fulfill his promise. Just trust him. Let's go. Let's take it. But the people won't have a bar of it. They say, well, obviously God didn't take Harry Sutar into account. Right? We can't go in and do this. And God's response is this. He swears that they will not enter my rest. It's quoted in Psalm 95. And then that's picked up on again here in Hebrews 4. They will not enter my rest. Now, why? Why not? What were they missing? Were they missing a promise from God? No. Did they miss out on hearing the promise? No. What were they missing? Faith. They were missing faith in God. They refused to trust him. Again, come back to Hebrews 4 verse 2. The message they heard, that is the message of the good news that they're about to enter the promised land, the promised rest from God, the message that they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
And again, this isn't just a, a blip of doubt, right? We all have times where we doubt God. We have times where we can't see how on earth God is going to pull us through something. That happens. God can take our doubts. However, this isn't just a blip of doubt. Both Psalm 95 and then later here in Hebrews 4 pictures this as a hardening of their hearts. Picture a door that's slammed shut with a deadlock and a bar across the back. This is people saying, and you know, on the surface they might say, oh yeah, 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 no, God can do anything, of course. But in their hearts they're believing, no, there's no way that God will do this if he truly is God. He doesn't care. If he cared, he wouldn't put us in this situation. He's not truly powerful. If he was truly powerful, this wouldn't have happened. Maybe he's not the true God at all. They have a hard heart. And the irony here is that this is the same people that experienced God's saving work in the Exodus, right? Like they saw the parted waters. They saw the, the, uh, the plagues poured out on their enemies. They saw the fire leading them by night and the pillar of cloud leading them by day. They saw God at work with their own eyes. They had their ticket booked and their bags packed for goodness sake. They were already on the boat. And yet they didn't enter the rest because they didn't trust God. Here's the point that the writer of Hebrews comes to in verse 2. We have heard the good news just as they did. In fact, God has been even clearer with us, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, they may have seen waters part and they may have seen plagues and pillars of fire and cloud and all that, but they didn't have God personally come to them and walk in their midst. God has sent his own son, Jesus Christ, as the perfect revelation of who he is. He is God. He's the gift of the Father who has come, not just to save us out of slavery in a, in a city, but actually to free us from the slavery of sin. He is God who walked among us, lived a perfectly obedient life to the Father, and yet gave his life on the cross, our life for his life, the great exchange taking our sin upon himself, taking our judgment upon himself so that we can go free, giving us a new righteous identity so that when God looks at us, he sees his son. This is what Jesus came to do, and it's more personal and powerful than anything the Israelites ever experienced. God has been so much clearer with us. And each and every one of you, if you've never heard that before, has just heard the good news of the gospel. Okay? Therefore, the warning from verse 1. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, be careful, be wary, lest any of you, any of you, any of you seem to have failed to reach it. Here's the thing. Lots of Aussies have heard the gospel. Not many of them are Christians. Lots of them have heard. Not many respond. Remember Ryan's illustration last week with the, the chair, right? There are people who hear the good news about Jesus, but this is what they do. It's like, it's like with the chair. They say something like, well, you know, I'm sure that that chair could hold me up if I sat on it, theoretically. Or... 
I have lots of experience with chairs. You know, I've sat on them before. I know what it is to sit on a chair. Yes, very fine, sturdy chair, as far as chairs go. I think I'd like to sit on it. They say all these sorts of things about Jesus as well. Yeah, I'm sure that if I repented of my sin, if I put my trust in him, then he could save me, theoretically. I have lots of experience with Christian things. I've been to church. I even got baptised. I went forward at a youth rally when I was a kid. I went forward at the Billy Graham crusade. I have lots of experience with Christian things. In fact, as far as people go, Jesus was a pretty good guy. Good teacher. Very wise. None of those things is saving faith. None of them. Saving faith is when you rest your full weight, as it were, on the chair. Not just talking about it, not just intellectually assenting to it, agreeing that it would help. It is resting the entire weight of your sin, your deserved judgment, your life, even your very soul, onto Jesus, who alone can save you. That is saving faith. It's personally trusting that Jesus is your only hope for forgiveness and new life. Not church attendance, not baptism, not a decision that you made decades ago, not going forward at a youth rally, not going forward at the Billy Graham crusade. Wonderful things. But actually, it's trusting in him now, today. It is present and active faith, not the faith of yesterday. Is that you? Do you have present active faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you? Are you today resting your entire weight on him to take your sin and judgment? Or have you hardened your heart to God? How do you know if you have a hard heart? Well, I'm not a doctor, obviously, so I can't diagnose heart issues. But God's word can. Take a look at verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and doing what? Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word discerns whether our heart is heart or not. See, this is actually what the gospel does. The gospel is like the sun that melts the ice but hardens the clay. Our response to the gospel, the good news about Jesus, actually shows whether we have a heart that melts before him in humility and dependence or a heart that hardens up in self-justification, self-reliance and doubt. So if you hear the gospel, right? what I just said before about Jesus coming and saving us, if you hear that and you just go, I've heard that before. Tell us something new. Chances are you've got a hard heart. Or at least you're at risk of one. If you think that obedience gets you to God, right? Doing the, the sinner's prayer at some point in your life or um, going forward at some youth rally and feeling strong emotions, right? Or um, being baptized, coming to church. If you think those things get you to God, then currently you have a hard heart. Or conversely, if you think that the gospel shouldn't change the way that you live, 
as if obedience doesn't matter. You think, well, now I've got my ticket to heaven. I can do whatever I want. Buddy, you've got a hard heart. It's not me saying that. That's the gospel diagnosing that. That's God's word piercing to the division of soul and spirit and exposing the intentions and thoughts of the heart. God warns you that you will not inherit my rest. You will not enter it. This is the time to ask the question, friends. Will you enter God's rest? On the other hand, there's another possibility. Because even though the Israelites, that first generation in the wilderness, didn't enter the promised land and didn't enter God's promised rest, and those today with a hardened heart also don't enter, verse 3 has more to say. Take a look at it there. For we who have believed enter that rest. What happens for those who believe? Well, it's not that we fail to enter God's rest. Instead, it's that we do enter God's rest. And so it brings us to our second point. There is a promise. It's possible to enter God's rest today. It's interesting, actually, that verse 3 doesn't say we'll enter the rest. You see, it actually just says enters God's rest. It's like a present tense, you know, present versus past tense. This is a present tense. And if you come down to verse 10, it's even clearer. Whoever has entered God's rest, has rested from his works, as God did from his. That's past tense in this case, uh, rather than future tense. If you believe, you have entered God's rest. This isn't something to wait for. This is something that can happen today. And so we come to verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, right? The Israelites may have failed, but the door is open right now. That The opportunity remains for you to enter God's rest. And then verse 7 goes on to say that again, God appoints a certain day. What day? Today. Today. Do you see that there in verse 7? Today. Saying through David so long afterwards, this is in Psalm 95, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as they did in the rebellion. See, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that, yes, God spoke to the Israelites and offered them rest. They didn't enter it. They missed out. But today, he speaks to you and to me, and he offers us rest in him. Through the words of Psalm 95, which David wrote decades after, the Israelites entered the promised land. And through the words of Hebrews 4, written again centuries after, and we're separated from them by some 2,000 years, through these words, God is still speaking to people on the other side of the world in Australia in a mediocre building in the middle of Wyoming. And he's saying, today you can enter my rest. The door's open. The opportunity remains for you to enter his rest. This is good news. But the question behind the question is, so what is it? What is God's rest after all this? Yeah, I get it. Okay, I can enter it now. What is it? And again, you might assume that you've got it all figured out. I know what you're going to say, Dan. I've heard this sermon before. I know what you're talking about. In fact, why haven't you told us already? Just let the cat out of the bag. We all know what you're talking about. The passage hasn't told us yet what God's rest is. That's why I haven't told you. 
We've got to define God's rest in the way that the Bible does, not in the way that our assumptions provide a definition for us. What is God's rest according to Hebrews 4? Well, we start to get a bit of a hint of it in verse 8. Here's the first thing about God's rest. This is part of what makes it so good. It is not temporary, but everlasting. It is not temporary, but everlasting. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, you might remember after the first generation of Israelites failed to enter the promised land, Joshua and Caleb stepped up to lead the second generation. You remember this? The second generation would come into the promised land. So the first were disciplined. They didn't get to enter, but the second received the promise. And enter it they did. Finally, they've entered into God's promised rest after 40 years of wandering around the desert. Imagine that. We think two years of lockdown is bad. 40 years, for goodness sake. Except even that generation didn't even really get to rest, did they? Right? Like, they only had something temporary because, as many of us know, the rest of the history of Israel is disaster after disaster after disaster. It's war. It's exile. Why? Because even though they enjoyed the gift of the promised land, they rejected the giver again and again and again and again. Instead of following him, they followed their own sinful selfishness. And so they never had true rest, even though they were in the land of rest. They only ever experience a temporary rest apart from God, not true rest with God. And as many of us know, that's the case with any kind of rest that we try to secure for ourselves apart from God in this world. Even the best holiday. We all know this. You go on the best holiday you can, you come back. Within a couple of weeks, it's like the holiday never happened. Yeah, you've got a couple of stories to tell around the dinner table, a couple of photos to show off, but you're back to the stress and the pressure of everyday life. And kids, I bet you're looking forward to school holidays, right? School holidays are just around the corner. Can't wait. But have you ever noticed how quickly school holidays go from the start to Christmas to New Year's and then suddenly you're back at school? It happens so quick, even though it's six whole weeks. That's exactly, (laughs) that's the case with with all of these kind of escape strategy rests that we might employ. They're good for a time, enjoy them for a time, but they don't give lasting rest. It's the same with treatment as well, right? Now, I'm someone who's been really fantastically helped by counsellors and psychologists, really believe in the good work that a good counsellor and a good psychologist can do. However, again, you can do... Cognitive behavioural therapy and mindfulness practice till the cows come home. But it won't address your deepest problem, the deepest source of rest that you need. It'll help you be more balanced in life. It's helped me, but it won't address your deepest issue. It's actually an issue of sin. Because any time that we try to seek rest apart from God and not with God, it doesn't last. That's what the Israelites found. And that's actually also what uh, you may have heard of a fellow named Charles Spurgeon. You heard of him before? The great evangelist, the great preacher. Uh, He had this to say. I love this quote. He says, rest, is it obtainable? Is it possible? Can there ever be rest 
for the race who were driven out of paradise to till the ground whence they were taken and eat the bread in the sweat of their face. Rest. Is it possible for a soul polluted with sin, tossed to and fro with inward lusts and agitated with outward temptations? Is it not the fate of man's soul to use her wings as long as they will last her, forever flitting to and fro in vain pursuit of rest, seeing far and wide, I love this phrase, a mocking waste of disappointments, but never reaching a place of repose for her flagging pinions? Powerful and true observation, I think. This is why the rest God gives is such good news. It is not temporary. It is everlasting. In God's rest, we can rest our flagging wings and feet, as it were, and find that we can stop our vain pursuit and find that we have something that can actually deal with sin's pollution in us and sin's power over us. And that's because God's rest is deeper and richer than anything the world can offer. And we get again another picture of this in verse 9. Because it's no good if God's rest is everlasting, not temporary, unless it's actually a good thing. A thing that goes on forever and isn't actually good isn't a good thing, right? How is God's rest so good? Verse 9 tells us. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Pause on that. Again, remains something that's there for us to take hold of today. There remains... A Sabbath rest for the people of God. Some of us know what that word means, Sabbath. It's a beautiful word. It's maybe an uncommon word. If you know anything, it's probably something like that it's a public holiday that the Israelites got once a week, right? They could stop their work. The field could have a rest. They could be with each other. They could direct their attention back to God. A bit of a public holiday to focus on the things that really matter. That's good as far as that goes. And that was God's gift of rest to people each week in the Old Testament times. But the word Sabbath in verse 9, yeah, it pictures that kind of rest, but actually something far bigger. The reason I think that is because there's something happening here that actually our English translations don't fully capture. And I hate saying that because like, I don't just want to be the know-it-all on stage. It's like, oh, look, I can tell you a bit of Greek. That's not really what I'm trying to do here. I'm just trying to point to the fact that there's more behind these words then is really happening. And that's because uh, up until now, the writer has used a pretty stock standard Greek word for rest. You can see it up there. It's used in verse 1, twice in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 8. Think twice in verse 10 and verse 11, right? So it's used a whole bunch of times in this little section that we've read. It's the word katapawo. Katapawo. Just means rest, right? Having a sleep, having a lie down, a rest. Here, he pivots to a new word in verse 9. And you might not be able to tell it because it says the word rest right there, right next to the word Sabbath. Uh, isn't that just the same thing? Well, no. It's a totally new word. It's this word. Sabbatismos. Sabbatismos. Of course, it sounds like Sabbath, right? But it's not the word for Sabbath. There's a different word for Sabbath that's used in the New Testament. This is, in fact, a totally unique word. It's what you might call a neologism, a new word. Right, that the writer of Hebrews invents for this purpose. I can picture the writer perhaps sitting there doing something like, 
How do I describe God's rest? How do I describe it? It's not just katapao. It's not just having a rest. It's something more than that. It's, it's kind of like the Jewish idea of Sabbath, where they had that rest for a day, but it's more than just a day. And it's more than just the things that people did on Sabbath. Now, I've got to, how do I express this? There's no word that I know that actually expresses it. I'll make one up, right? It's kind of like Sabbath, so I'll take part of that, and I'll, I don't know, I'll just chuck something else on the end of it. Sabbatismos. It's like Sabbath, but it's more than Sabbath, hence needing to invent this new word. It's actually not used anywhere else in the Greek-speaking world for a number of hundreds of years after, right? This is a totally new word that he invents for this purpose. And this word captures actually something that the Jewish Sabbath day could only glimpse. They rested for their work from a, for a day. But the Sabbatismos, God's true rest, invites us to rest from all our works for eternity. If you just go one slide back for me there, Reynard, I think I've just actually hit it. So they rested for a day. But God invites us to rest for an eternity from all our works. And that comes through if we continue on to verse 10. Uh, Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Uh, We don't just rest from our nine to five, right? That's the escape strategy. We don't just bake something into our rhythm so that we make sure we get constant rest. That's the treatment strategy. There's something more here going on. We actually get to rest from needing to perform work to earn rest with God. Do you hear the difference? We rest from needing to perform works to earn rest with God. Like I said, it's not church attendance or baptism or doing good things that make us right with our creator. It's simply trusting in Jesus' finished work for us. Surely that can't be enough. Surely belief can't be enough. Again, that's what Charles Spurgeon thought at one point in his conversion. Here's what he said. I do remember well when I first found rest. I did not think it was so simple a matter. I could not believe that rest came simply by trusting. What? Only believe. But now I found out that the only believing is one of the richest things in the world. For it brings 10,000 other things with it. You can go flitting to and fro, as he said before, after 10,000 other things. 10,000 good works to try and earn your way to God's rest. Or you can do just one thing. Believe in the work of Jesus on your behalf and find that you get 10,000 other things with it. Because instead of trying to earn God's favour, we find that he receives us with unconditional love. That's not something that anyone on earth can give us. Not my psychologist, not the tour guide on the holiday, obviously, not even my wife. We give each other love that's conditioned on our marriage vows. It's a lot of love, but it's not unconditional. Only God can give us unconditional love. That's where true rest is found. Instead of trying to form an identity that we think is acceptable to God or others, we find that God simply makes us enough by calling us sons and daughters, declaring it so. He makes us enough. Instead of trying to cover up our sin and our guilt and our shame, we find that God just forgives it because Jesus took it on our behalf. See, 10,000 other things simply by believing. 
Do you need to hear that this morning? The work is done. Jesus did it. It's finished. He's forgiven you. He's made you new. And kids, I want you to hear that too. God's work is done. You do not need to do good works to earn your way to God. He has forgiven you through Jesus' death and resurrection. If you trust in him, if you trust in Jesus today, then you find forgiveness and new life in God. There's more to say about this Sabbatismos as well. Uh, on the Sabbath, the Israelites could spend a day enjoying each other's company. That's great. Having a bit of a break. But through faith in Christ, we're actually drawn into a family with whom we don't just spend time. We actually have a bond in Christ that goes deeper than anything else in life. It's a bond that actually crosses social, ethnic, financial, political, any other kind of divide you can imagine. That's why we're this motley crew here this morning, right? Because we're in Christ. We're drawn into a family that starts now, lasts forever. Nothing in the world can give you that. Only believing in Christ and being united to him and enjoying that aspect of God's rest, the communal aspect. Do you need to hear that this morning? You're not alone. You have brothers and sisters. You're part of a family. And another thing, the Israelites spend a day each week drawing their attention back to God, sort of like wrestling back because the rest of the week made that so difficult. I wonder if we can sympathize with them. We don't have to simply draw our attention, wrestle it back to God. Actually, we're drawn into rest with God personally. This is part of the meaning of that phrase, God's rest. It's not just rest that comes from God, but rest that is with God. Verse 10 says, Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. There's something there about the rest of God that we are drawn into. If you want a picture of that, look right back to creation. God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. He created the world, created man and woman, and then rested. And what was the first thing he did when he rested? Spent time with his creation. Walking, talking, enjoying face-to-face -face relationship with them, commanding them how they are to live, but being to them a father, being to them a shepherd, being to them a friend in the garden with whom they could share relationship. That is the sabbatismos. That is the rest of God into which we are drawn. Do you need to hear that this morning? That Christianity is not just a matter of rote observance, nor just a matter of mechanical belief that gives you a ticket to heaven. It is relationship. It is rest with God. As you delight in knowing him and as you enjoy friendship with him, as you open the Bible and pray to him, it's friendship. Now, this is the rest of God. It's not temporary, but everlasting. The world can't give you that. It's the complete end of working to cover up sin or secure God's acceptance. It's life together as family. And it's friendship, relationship with the God who invites you into rest. No escape, no treatment, nothing in the world can give you these things. And it's something you can have today. 
Yes, something we'll fully experience in the new creation, but it's something you can have right now, today. Which brings us to the conclusion in verse 11. Here's where the writer lands all these amazing soaring truths. What does he want us to do with it? Verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, that sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Strive to rest. Does that make sense? Well, what is he saying? He's saying that God's rest isn't passive. It's not let go and let God. Have you heard that expression before? Let go and let God. It's not that. It's trust God and get going. Trust him. Trust what Christ has done for you. Now move on with doing the things that enable you to make sure you enter that rest, that you keep believing, that you keep trusting, that you keep repenting of sin and so enjoy full relationship with God. Trust God and keep going. It's cultivating a living, active trust in Jesus day by day, not leaning in the faith of yesterday, but on the faith of today. And now we've come full circle. Strive to enter it. What needs to happen? for you to enter into God's rest today. I have three things to say on that. Three different groups of people who may be here this morning. Perhaps you haven't entered God's rest at all. Perhaps as we've been unpacking this passage, remember the gospel melts the ice but hardens the clay? Perhaps you're hearing this and and feeling a sense of melting, perhaps. A sense of There is something here that I haven't yet done. I haven't actually entered the rest of God. There's no shame in missing that. This might actually be the moment where God is regenerating your heart. He's he's replacing hardness with softness. Go with that if that's what God is doing. You can't stand in God's way anyway. He does what he will. Listen to him. If you haven't entered God's rest, why on earth not? To put it another way, here's Charles Spurgeon once again where he says, How I pity you who have not entered the rest of God. Right? You're so morally good, so amiable, so truly lovable. You adorn the households in which you move. He's saying, you have all the good things of life. You're even a pretty good person on the balance of things. But for lack of one thing, you are not happy. And you never can be till you get that one thing. Oh, I wish that you had it. I wish that you had it today. And friends, here's the thing. You can. You can have it right now. What step do you need to take to turn from your rebellion against God, embrace the fact that actually you're not a morally good person, you're a sinner in need of forgiveness, and cling to Christ in faith? What step do you need to take? I know for some people as well, and I was talking with someone during the week about this, um, there's like, there's like a, they might intellectually assent to all the truths of Christianity. They might say, yeah, that all, yep, I think it's all true. Jesus lived, died, rose again, yep, died for sin, yep, absolutely. But there's like a, there's a desire in their life that's keeping them from actually leaning on the chair, as it were. They're like, if, if I do this, it will mean I have to give up X, Y, or Z. Friend, put it in balance. This thing that will never give you rest... Versus true rest with God. Weigh it up. What do you need to let go of so that you might lean on Christ and find true rest? That's to those who perhaps 
haven't entered God's rest at all. To those of you who might have rested in God at one point, but feel as though now you are not. Simple. Return to God's rest. Return to God's rest. Stop flitting about from thing to thing, hoping that it might give you what you're looking for. It won't. It won't. We were never made to find rest in sin. It will only ever exhaust you and destroy you. It will chew you up and spit you out. Satan is not your friend. The world is not your home. And sin is not your true rest. Return to your true rest in God. Again, the words of Spurgeon. What fruit have you had in all your sins since you wandered? What joy, what happiness have you known? Be honest. Oh, it has all been disappointment, vexation, delusion. Come back, come back, come back. The mercy seat is open still. The heart of Jesus beats lovingly towards you still. The grace of God waits for you still. Amen. Come back. Finally, to those who have entered God's rest, you obtained it by believing. So continue in it by believing. His invitation to rest in him is given as passionately and urgently to you today as when you first heard it. And so again, in the words of Spurgeon, very simply, O abide believer, always at the cross, never go away from it. In our struggle with sin and a world full of hardships, this is the only place to find true rest, at the cross of Jesus Christ. Strive to enter it. Keep striving. When doubts arise, remind yourself, God has brought me into this rest. He's done all the work. When sin tempts you, fight back, not with just harder work, but by reminding yourself, I already have rest with God. What can this thing offer me? What can it offer me? When worries consume you, calm them. God invites me to rest with him. He holds me. When all you can do is wish that today was over, cling to the truth. I can rest with God today. This very day, he invites me in. Friends, strive to enter that rest and you will find it is true rest for you and your soul. Let's pray. Lord, as I consider that there are likely those three groups of people here in church this morning, um, pray that you would speak to our minds and our hearts exactly what needs to be heard. You would wake those of us up who need waking up, calm those of us who need calming, assure those of us who need assurance, love those of us who need love, bring the truth to bear on those of us who need the truth. Lord, do your will, because you are all wise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of us who have entered the rest that we're speaking about this morning, this is now a time to remember that and celebrate it together as a family. This is actually a bit of a picture of sabbatismos as we share in the Lord's Supper. It's eating and drinking.